Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Take your Bibles and let's turn to Joshua chapter 4. As we do, I'd like for us to consider um, this American first, the real first head honcho, uh, our real forefather, George Washington. Um, we know, obviously, that he was not the only man that built America for what it is, uh, but it was important enough that he made his way onto the quarter, he made his way onto the dollar bill, and you may have seen this before. There, there was a monument made for him, the Washington, if, you're, if you don't know what this is, first of all, you're not American. Second of all, maybe he's too young. Uh, this is the Washington Monument, all right? In its time, when this was built in 1884, this was, on its completion, the tallest building in the world. Um, so it was very significant. It was meant for onlookers to see and wonder, what is this? I mean, they would build this thing, bigger than anything else in the world at the time, to bring attention to something. It, was, it had a whole purpose to ask, what is this? To bring honor and show the strength of the nation and specifically to Washington. Now, it's supposed to, as many of these monuments are supposed to do, cause us to ask the question, what is that for? What's the significance? Why would that happen? Uh, monuments and memorials in general are meant for a very specific use, very specific purpose. Uh, you'll not see anyone... Um, playing games with this thing or doing something or we would use it anywhere specifically, it's meant to conjure up thoughts and questions for us. And so when we, we say this, we say, what does this thing mean? Why was someone so infatuated with Washington that they would make this structure? Uh, there's other things that show this as well. Some of you may know what this is. This is the Taj Mahal. This is a memorial, a memorial to love, as it were. It has a whole backstory to it. It's probably the most famous and, I would say, beautiful and expensive mausoleum ever built. The story goes that the emperor that built this was madly in love with his wife, one of his wives. This girl was called Mumtaz Mahal, which means the jewel of the palace. And when she was ready to bear him a child, she was in grave danger and eventually died. And on her deathbed, the emperor said, I promise never to marry another and I will build you the most beautiful and expensive mausoleum over top of your grave. Well, he kept that promise, and today it's one of the wonders of the world. This thing is beautiful. And everyone who walks by asks, what is that thing? It's beautiful. And all of us today, it's such a monument to us that most of us actually know what it's about. And the fact that I can tell you that story in and of itself means that it did its job. There's other things like this. You guys know what this is. Again, if you don't, you're either too young or you're not American. This is the Statue of Liberty. Again, a, a, a picture and a symbol of freedom and all of the different folks that came through Ellis Island for freedom's sake and to have liberty. This is reminding us of that. Uh, you might know this, the Sphinx. Or right behind it, you see even in, in better detail there, the pyramids. All these remind us, whoa, something is going on here. It gets our attention and causes us to ask, who built that thing and who is it built for? Why was it built? You have the Eiffel Tower. 
all these are recognizable and they make us stop and remember. We also have the Stonehenge. I mean, there, there are t- so many different ones throughout history, but we look at this and we still say, what happened here? What was this all about? What's the significance? Or the other one that Americans know so well, out of granite is these four faces that come. There are these American presidents. All of these different things, monuments to something or someone that has happened to draw our attention to some sort of truth and ask a question. All of these things serve a very specific purpose. All these monuments and all these memorials are meant to, for us to ask some sort of question, whether it's just why or what or what's the significance. It's meant for us to do that. So we come back and say, we've got to do something with this. It's not just a weird thing that's sitting out there. There's something significant about it. They were meant to draw your attention. Today, when we get into Joshua 4, we're going to realize that we're coming across a memorial, a monument. And therefore, we should be asking the question, why? What is this thing all about? What is the significance for us? The cool part is there are kind of actually going to be two answers to that. You'll see what I mean in a moment. Last week, we talked through getting to the edge of the Jordan and crossing it. We listened to the Lord speak to Joshua and and therefore to the people. And then Joshua turned and spoke to the people. We watched as the Ark of the Covenant and the priests go to the edge of the water. And as they dip their toes in, it stops. We watch as the Jordan dries up, the Jordan drive, and all the people begin and they go ahead and pass over. And this was an event. I mean, it was huge. It was a miracle. Or we had saw in 3.5 that this is a wonder that only God could have done this thing. We experienced the amazing interaction as well between God and his people. Remember they were supposed to consecrate themselves to meet God here? We watched as the Lord did wonders for his people. No one else could explain them. And we stood with them then in awe of this God, saying, this is our God, the God truly of wonders. Not cheapening it, but saying, no, no, we have a front row seat to a historical event that the rest of the world will talk about forever. The drying up of the Jordan as two million plus people cross over it. That's amazing. But now we get to chapter 4, and we're wondering what's going on. Last time, again, we went through chapter 3. We kept moving through it. We saw that what it was doing was giving us that front row look. But when we get to chapter 4, the verbs actually change a little bit. Well, let me just give you an overview or a quick just like a little statement about this. Chapter 3 is almost as though we're watching, that we talked about last time, the newscast, the live newscast. It's happening, and we're walking through it together. Chapter 4, the verbs and the structure totally change. It's almost like it slows down and goes back to a lot more narrative. And it's more of these things of completion that this actually happened instead of that this is happening. That's what chapter 3 was, almost very much alive. For chapter 4 now, we change. Why? It's basically finishing up the story, right? We're trying to understand. But nagging in our heads is from last week, 3.12. Remember what happened in chapter 3, verse 12, where we said, why is that verse there? In the midst of Joshua telling the people how they know that this living God is here, he says, uh, and and he appoints 12 people from each of the tribes of Israel. And we're left asking, why? Because he goes right back on to continue talking about what he was talking about before. Well, today, we start to realize that he did that, verse 12, on purpose. And he was showing us that there is more to come, more explanation, more to the story than just chapter 3. 
In the midst of the speech about how this is going to happen, he says that something else is more important for us to realize and prepare for. Joshua chapter 3 and 4, we've talked about this before, is a whole unit. Probably, if I could have had a little bit better, I would have liked it on the whole thing at one time, but we probably would have been here for at least an hour and a half. So you can be thankful that I didn't do that. But those of you that are OCD (laughs) are going to hate this. It's not just 3 and 4. It actually goes right into 5-1. 5-1 is actually the end of this unit. It is the whole of this thing. And if any of you have read this whole unit together, you can see that it all deals with the same material. It's all dealing with the same story from 3-1 all the way to 5-1. You're getting the whole story, but you're not getting it in a typical chronological fashion. What I mean by that is story usually has, let's say it has six parts, and in time, they go part one, and then at a later time, part two, and a later time, part three, and a later time, part four, etc. And we have some sort of a chronological order. That's not what happens here. And it bugs us as American readers. We're not used to that. We're not used to jumping around and finding out what's going on. But I just want to just help us for a moment. It seems disjointed. It seems inconsistent. And by the end of the story, we're trying to make sense of, once we get into chapter 4 especially, we're trying to make sense of what's going on. There are times where the narrative seems to repeat itself, where it seems to say, I thought this was supposed to be in front of that person, but now you're saying this part is before that. Who's right? We almost end up thinking that there is two different explanations of the same events. This is not a cause for alarm. Many unbelieving scholars will look at chapters 3 and 4 and they'll say, oh, look, here, look at this mess. Try to sort this thing out. I know what happened here. It's several different sources getting amalgamated together, and through this we can clearly see that this Bible is not reliable. I mean, who knows where it actually went, so we should probably toss out 3 and 4. We don't have the real understanding of what happened here, and if we have to toss that out, who knows what else we have to toss out with the Bible we don't really like or can't make sense of. Now, I understand that. They think that there's historical accuracy is suspect. They think that apparent contradictions then are grounds for us tossing out the whole story and for saying that, you know, we can never really recover the true events that took place. I'll remind you of what we talked about a couple weeks ago. The Bible, specifically Joshua in our context, but the Bible is not only concerned with history. That's not what this book is about. It certainly is true history, and it's telling us the truth of the world, but that's not the whole goal of the Bible, to tell us what happened only. It's to help us understand from God's perspective what happened and why it's significant for you and me. It is therefore a theological history. It's not concerned about making sure every single detail is even explained. He will jump over at times things that we're like, I want to know what happened the next event, the next event, the next event. That's not important for him, so he doesn't include it. That doesn't mean it's not accurate. That doesn't mean that at all. It means it's his choice to make sure he gets to bring to the forefront what's most important to him. So we have to read it for what it is. That means that we can read this, then, with confidence that we have all we need in this text to understand and obey God. He will not lie to us. He never has. We know that from him comes all good gifts. He gives us his text for his glory and for our good. So since this is a reliable text, since we believe these things to be true about the scriptures, it's really kind of on us then to figure out what he's talking about. I think Stacy used to say something like this, no dumb Christians allowed. You are not allowed to jump over Joshua 3 and 4 and not deal with it. 
So today, part of my task is to try to lead us through and understanding why it was put together like this. Because it certainly does declare truth. So we must handle it. We've got to work through it. We've got to deal with it. And then see what bearing it has then for our own lives. So, in chapter 3, we had the storytelling of this great wonder. The crossing of the, Red, I'm sorry, of the Jordan and on dry ground. The emphasis in chapter 3 specifically was to bring us along. Give us that first front row seat to the action. In chapter 4, once we start, it's going to seem like we're getting new information and like we're just, the next thing on the list is happening. And it's almost like we aren't actually done with the narrative. Like we thought the event was finished, but now we have to make sense of all this new material in the story. The truth is... (laughs) When you and I first read Joshua 3 and 4 together, we get to chapter 4 and we're a little bit frustrated because first we don't really know exactly why he's doing what he's doing, but then we kind of wish like, hey, Joshua, couldn't you include this stuff during the narrative? Like, I don't know if you're starting something new or if you're actually just giving more detail. I'm not really sure. Don't be dismayed. You do get it. Chapter 3 is by itself very helpful as a standalone structure. It is the story. It's the truth. It's a narrative. What I want us to do, though, today is look at chapter 4 for what it is. It is a way to explain what has happened in chapter 3. Our author is giving us explicit or clear understanding of what the events in chapter 3 mean. He's going to give us more detail about what's happening in there. He's going to use narrative to do it. He's actually going to continue to tell a story. But he's not doing so to confuse us. He's actually doing so that we stay on the edge of our seats and understand the significance that happened, significant events that happened during that whole story from 3 1 to 17. Now, he'll do this through story and he's going to help us understand why it's important. In fact, I think Joshua is a true preacher. He can take 17 verses and he has to explain it with 25 more verses. So, like, he's going to give us all the theological significance of those 17 verses. But it's honest to pay attention then. So what we're going to do is walk through this whole text together, understanding why he put these things together, understanding his point of significance for this monumental event. Joshua 4, 1 through 5. Let me read the first five verses. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of of the people of Israel. Now let me take a minute here to explain something. I think this will be helpful because all of us are like, when is this happening? Did everyone already cross over and now they're going back in? What's happening here? And again, because we are so used to chronological order, it bothers us to figure out, wait, is this like a secondary thing? Or are they like bringing back a whole group and rewinding? What's happening here? When I first read this in English, I thought, okay, they're going back in and doing this. They're, they're, this is the next stage in the, in, in the, in the history. That's not quite right. What we don't see here are some of these verbs are continual verbs in Hebrew. What all that means is this is at the end of the crossing. It means while they are finishing out, 
And the word that the ESV uses is when they were doing this. While this is happening, this is when the Lord speaks. So we see this, and it's important for us to understand then that this, the thing that he just said in Joshua 4, 1 through 5, is happening during the completion of the crossing. Notice for a minute, if you will, that no one goes back in there. There's never anything that in our text that says, send the men back into the river to pick them up. In verse 3, God tells Joshua, take 12 stones from here. That's a directional piece showing us where they're at. Take them from here out of the midst of the Jordan. Also, you'll notice that Joshua never, again, like I said, never has any sort of words of go back and return with the stuff. He says in verse 5, pass on before the ark of the Lord. In other words, like, go around it and come through here. Pass on your, where the, of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder. This is happening as Israel is finishing up the crossing. Now that's important for us to understand to say, okay, okay, now I can kind of put this together. I understand. But what's significant here? The Lord tells Joshua to have 12 tribal representatives pick up the stones from the places where the feet of the priests reside, where they're standing there to pick these stones up, to carry them over the Jordan, and to, he says, lay them down, or the actual verb here is to rest them in the promised land. Interesting. We have Yahweh commanding Israel, the beginnings of him commanding Israel to make a monument. Like we saw all these ones. This is the first part of it, and it is laden with all this significance. Think about it. How many stones? Not eight, not five, not 12, I mean, not, not 13. He's got 12 exactly. Yeah, they like that. 12 stones for 12 tribes. This is on purpose. He is taking them from where? From the Jordan River. From where specifically? From the feet place where the feet of the priests were at. This is significant. Also, why would he do that? In, in a sense, like 12 representative stones then and telling them that they would be rested in this promised land. Each piece of this is teaching us why this memorial will be important. We may not understand why the, all of the different pieces of the monument that we look at Washington Monument is, is important for us. If we did some study, we'd probably figure out a lot more. But here he is explaining from the get-go why it's so important these 12 stones be set up. He is showing us that that's what's important here. So let's look, pick up at verse 5 and read through 8. Verse 5, And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children come to, to ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded them, commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Joshua relays the command to the men, but then gives them a purpose. He doesn't just give this idea, says, go do this. He tells them why it's going to be important. These guys are saying, what are we fooling around with these rocks in the middle of Jordan for? What's, what's the purpose? Like, if they're heavy, I don't know why you want to do this. 
in verse 8, I mean, he, he's, I mean, excuse me, he starts to show us this. He says, not in verse 8, but earlier on, that this may be a sign among you. He's showing them why these 12 stones are so important. When your children come to you, because you've had this happen, your children come to you and ask, what does this mean, or why is that stack of stones there, mommy or daddy? What should, what, why is that there? It is an opportunity on purpose for them to ask that question. And the response then is to be this. You'll tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it, the ark, when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. The purpose of this is to be a memorial showing this event to generations that come to, to, to come. God commands his people to make this memorial, this monument, so that they will not forget the significance of this river crossing, not of the monument itself, of what happened here. As our children ask us about the Washington Monument or maybe about the, the pyramids, so their children also said, what do these 12 stones mean? And from that question, they answered something like this. <laughs> the presence of Yahweh was here. He was here. So much so that when the ark hit the water, the priest's feet hit the water, it stopped. I was there. It was real. I mean, it really happened exactly how God said it was going to happen. His presence was right with us, and as soon as that happened, what he said would happen did happen. We crossed over on dry ground. It was absolutely amazing. And it was all because of the marvelous acts of Yahweh, the one that we worship together. He did that for us. He told us that that was what was going to happen. And as we obeyed and trusted him, he gave us his presence. And he walked with us into and through the river and made a way for us to go over this place. It is for us to remember the great wonders of Yahweh. That's what those 12 stones are about. And the kid, of course, is turning around saying, I didn't need that much, you know. But now they understand. It's an opportunity to hear the significance of what actually happened here. In verse 8, though, we see obedience. We see more obedience. They did exactly what Joshua had told them to do. When we get this, you know, we get this, this spot here and tells us that it continues on, we're wondering what's going to happen. Then verse 9 is this very interesting little phrase. We're not really sure at first glance why this happened. Let me read verse 9. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, uh, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. This is not the 12 stones that are being carried across and put over at Gilgal or put over on the, the shore where they're going to lodge. Why would Joshua do this? Why is he making a lesser, but a second monument, a second memorial. Why is he setting this up? In the, by the way, why is he setting up in the midst of the river? What's going to happen when it comes back down? Not only is it not going to be seen, most likely that river is going to come back pretty hard and fast. And when it does, it's probably going to just roll some of it away. However, it's stated here that this is here to this day as a memorial. And there it is to this day. As a memorial, it's important. What we're supposed to see, though, is the act that Joshua is doing was important between him and God. And his recognizing that it was God's presence in that river that allowed them to go into the promised land. 
He is making then a way for him and probably the priests that are around him to remember that this was Yahweh's work in them. No one else is going to see it from generations to come. Think about that. Where they put the next one, where they put this other monument, they will ask the question. No one's going to ask about this one, though. It's underwater. How are they going to know? What is exactly the purpose? Why would Joshua do this? I do think there's a small lesson for us here as we're going on. This was not for future generations. This is Joshua taking initiative. This is him in one sense saying, this is important to me. And I want to take a moment and stop and remember what God has done and highlight his presence here. He worships. He is making this as unto the Lord. He is making sure that he reminds himself this monument is important. It shows the presence of Yahweh in this Jordan River. I'm just going to take a brief aside here. Do you ever do anything like this? Are there ever times where you have experienced and known God, whether it's through the reading of his word, whether it's the preaching of the word, whether it's through his regular provision for you or keeping you in a way that no one else could? Do you ever take a moment to memorialize that? I would suggest that it's a good idea. It's not a bad idea to write some of those moments down. Journaling is a great way to do that as we remember God's care for us. It's not required. I'm not saying that. It's not as though we have to do that. But Joshua did this to remind even of himself. And I would say as a pastor and your friend, that's a great way for us to remember the great care of our Lord and remember his presence in our own life. When I was early in our marriage, uh, Chris and I, we didn't have a lot of money, really, really tight. And we were praying for some, God to provide a few things and working hard and I can remember this day, and God always, always provided. But I remember kind of this, this silly anecdote. I was walking with a friend outside on a rainy day, and we're walking around after, during work, uh, like our lunch break, and we come across, I come across a dollar bill. I mean, it's not much, um, and I don't know why this happened, but at the same time, God had, had provided for Chris and I over and over again. And it was a reminder to me, a silly reminder. I know it's only worth a buck. I have it right now, though on my corkboard, stuck there to remember that God always provided and always brings me back to that moment, remembering that God will provide. That's a good thing for us to do. What things do you write down? What things do you remember? What helps you remember the goodness of God? Because guess what? We're creatures of habit and we need to be reminded. The whole reason we do a service and Jordan puts together a liturgy, it's all purposeful. It's meant to teach us. It's meant to remind us of the truth. It's meant to help us remember it. The songs that we sing, they're even there so that they get stuck in your head so that you're singing godly words of reminder and conviction and those are praise to God. That's all on purpose. I would then encourage you as well along the way to write down maybe some of the things that God has done. Maybe it means putting a small, I don't know, a small note to remind you on your mirror of God's goodness or something like that. Joshua did that. I'm not saying that it's a must-do, but I think it will encourage you and remind and remember you to do that. Go to verse 10. This is a theological statement. Joshua says, For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. Our author wants us to know that what happened here was according to God's plan. Not only was it according to God's plan somewhere out there, it was what Joshua had told the people to do. 
Not only that, it was what God had told Moses to tell Joshua to do. All had gone according to God's sovereign plan. And he is then over all. As you can see them, those, those priests, standing there in the midst of the Jordan until all was completed. We see then that this is another statement of God's presence with his people and his reigning over all things and him having complete control and sovereignty to bring forth his will. Now, the end of this verse, to, up to 14, the next section here, it's like 10b. If you, if, probably if you have an ESV, it's the beginning of a new paragraph there. 10b through 14, let me talk about it for a moment. This is a summary statement. This is giving us an understanding overall of what has gone on up to this point. I'll read it in a moment. But you need to know what God has said is going to happen has happened. That's what this summary statement is all about. This is Joshua's way of showing that God has fulfilled all that he said he would. Also, I'll have you notice in verse 14, we have the fulfillment of what God said would happen in 3.7. If you look back, you're going to see in 3.7, he said to Joshua, I will exalt you in the eyes of the people. Now in 4.14, we have him being exalted in the eyes of the people. The reason I say all that is we are coming to a summary statement that's bringing this story to some sort of a close. This means that God said what he said about the event is going to come true. It's going to help us understand that this is the closing off of an event, and I want us to make sure we understand that this is the, the like almost like there should be almost like a, a deadline here, like it stops here. You'll see what I mean in a minute. Before we read, look at all the words pass over or passing over. I want you to notice that as I read through. All right, here we go. 10b, the people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priest passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the day of his life. All of Israel, except for the flocks and the women and children in the eastern tribes, they're still going to be on the east side, but all the tribes of Israel, represented by those 40,000 men that were for the eastern tribes, eastern tribes, and the rest are now going across the Jordan. The ark of the Lord was present there in the midst of the Jordan, and yet the author takes pain to show that the ark went before the people. We know that it stood as the people crossed, but then he even takes pains to show that it's going out back before, leading God's people, that it is his presence that is, that is really to do all these different things. It's important. All the people cross over. It's important to see that the eastern tribes have kept their promise, just like they said they would, both to God and their brothers, and they're here now in a summary statement. They're represented with their tribes of 40,000 armed men ready for battle at the front of the people. This then is a statement of summary for all that's happened and showing us their obedience, showing that they did what they were supposed to do. This is a statement that reminds us then also that when people trust and obey God, they enjoy his presence. That ark is still there. So we've reached, it seems, by the end of verse 14, it almost seems like we've reached the end. It seems like, what, what more could you say? What else do we have to cover, Joshua? But you'll notice that we still have 10 verses to go. What more could he say 
to continue this on. Let's read verse 15 through 18. The Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the Ark of the Testimony to come out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Now you probably heard me on purpose saying some things very clearly there. That idea of come up out, come up out, come up out of the midst of the Jordan. That's on purpose. From chapters 3 verse 1 all the way up to 414, we've never seen those words. Now that makes sense, we're getting to the other side of the Jordan. Yeah, we get it. But I want, I want us to see how important this is. He's used the word Passover, crossover, carried over. They're all the exact same root verb. That's what he is telling is going on. In other words, you are getting the perspective that's internal to Israel themselves. This is from their perspective as they cross over, as they watch God do it, as he sends them over, as they carry over the stones, as they pass over. And now you have a flip. Instead of that they, maybe there's a past tense, that they passed over, they crossed over, they carried over. Instead, we have a totally different verb. It says, come up out of the Jordan. We have this very big, important shift. You and I don't, don't see it as that, but this is really important. It is a shift in perspective. Again, we were with Israel, almost internal to what was going on, walking along the way with them. When we come to verse 15, though, it's like we left the, the, the ranks of the people walking through and joined the banks right here to look down and watch the people coming across the river, almost as though we were Canaanites seeing this happen. We're going to learn new stuff, it's, it, more stuff about this, but instead of crossover and Passover, we're, saying, we're seeing that the Israelites emerge from the riverbed to come into this land to conquer. That's exactly what is happening here. The whole narrative, again, that first half, 3-1 to 4-14, has been from the perspective of Israel. Now we have a new perspective. But our author is giving us another one here who it's like someone watching from the walls of Jericho and watching as the water stops and as they cross over into their land, they've come up out of the Jordan River. We're still seeing the truth, we're still seeing good information, but now we're seeing this layer of perspective. In verses 15 through 18, we still see that it isn't just the Lord's word that it comes to Joshua and the ark move forward out of the river. We're seeing from a different perspective, his command, God, Yahweh's command, the true leader is going to do this miracle and end what has happened. He is the one that began it with the opening up of this, of this river and now he's coming to the other side where he is closing it. He is just as much a part of the miracle for us to understand this. He began it. And at the same time, as they leave the river, the waters recede and come back down. Now, in one sense, you could say, well, maybe there's a landslide or some sort of situation that happened at the same time as when they were putting their feet in the river. It, it takes a lot of faith to believe that, but it, that's, that's true. But what about when they leave out of the river? It happened the exact same time when they left the river that the landslide broke apart and then all the water came back down. I would say that it's far, more, it's far smarter to say that Yahweh did this that this is God's work. Even if you use natural means, it is his to do. He is the king of the earth. This is then a, a confirmatory, if you will, a confirmation action. He's showing that this truly was God's miracle. 
It's an important part of this wonder of Yahweh. We're not only going to see that this is the people of earth stopping by to see what's going on, we're going to see that not only did it happen, but he closes it off, and now the people are coming out of the river, almost like the same verb is used, the frogs came out of the Nile River to come and devastate the people of Egypt. Same word is used here. The people are coming out of the river to devastate or conquer Canaan so that they might trust Yahweh and that they might have this land. Now let me read my favorite section. We've gotten to it. Verse 19 through 5.1. The people came out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God just dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did at the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for all the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Do you see the perspective change now? This is on the other side, them seeing this happen and their response is, oh my goodness, we are going to be destroyed and their hearts melt. Can you see that this is about the conquering of Canaan? And they know what's about to happen. They've seen this powerful Yahweh stop the river as all of their people came through to conquer them. The Canaanites get it. They know that this is the God who is powerful, who is coming for them. When all these kings heard of his mighty work, their hearts melted with fear. Again, This is all about God, our warrior king, coming to destroy his enemies and keep his promises to his people. In this paragraph, we see our warrior king going before us to destroy his enemies. We see here and understand that as he sets up these stones, he's making a memorial for Israel. But as I said earlier, there are two perspectives here for us. We already got one. He already already told us a story. He already said that when when their children ask, you're supposed to tell them what happened and this is a memorial. But here we have a second one. We already saw that Joshua told them that this is significant for your children. But this is a new perspective. This is significant for the whole world, for all the earth. He asks the question in in verse 21, when your children ask what do these stones mean, Joshua tells them to recount the story. But then he adds even greater significance in verse 24. Take a look. Yahweh brought his people across the Jordan River so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. God is flexing his infinitely strong arm for all the nations to see. And they get the picture. They see it. This is an act of declaration or proclamation of who he is, of his glory, of his power, of his might. But not only is he flexing for the nations, look at the second purpose statement in 24. It's not only one. There's like a secondary little piece there. It says that you, that's Israel, that you would fear the Lord your God forever. And as the nations see this God, some believe, 
Some run, others fight, but the message is very clear for God's people. You are to fear me and me alone forever. That's who I am. And I'll tell you the right way to view these events. You must fear me. I am the God of all of your ancestors, but I am the God who parted the Red Sea, and now you've seen it. I have parted the Jordan. And as we come up on these nations, you are to remember that you must fear me. Not to get more resources, not to get more military might, or to have the best strategy. He says, fear me. This memorial is a powerful reminder. It stands to teach us and remind us of our great God and his great wonders. It calls us then to ask the question, like we said before, what does this mean for us? This memorial calls God's people then to preach the truth of the Jordan crossing to themselves. That they realize what happened here shows something to be true about Yahweh. And that truth ought not to be forgotten. It ought to be remembered and proclaimed over and over again when their children see it. And remember that remembering is not just like remembering for a test. We're talking about remembering about the truth, and so it calls us to obedience to this Yahweh, to fear him. They are to remember God's promises and that he kept every last one of them. They are to remember that this is God, the strong one, the mighty God who performs wonders that no one else can perform. They are to remember that there is success and prosperity as they obey the word of the Lord, as he told them it would be. They are to remember, as we've seen it littered throughout all of three and four, that the presence of Yahweh is with them. Remember he said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That is what we're seeing happen right here. And they are to remember his presence when they look at this monument. And they realize that God himself was there amongst them. Today we have memorials all around us. And it would do us well to pay a little more attention to them. Not only is it good to the secular monuments to remember the importance of them, we have Christian monuments as well. I'm not just talking about different cathedrals throughout the time. I'm talking about perhaps maybe you'd think of the cross or memorials that are even more specific, like the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember what this is here as we join together for the communion today. It's many things for us as we remember and partake and we declare who he is, it is also a wonderful memorial. Did he not say, do this in remembrance of me? We feed on him knowing, and our strength comes from him, the true bread, the true manna, the living water. But in this aspect, even as Joshua has led us to this, we must not take this memorial, this monument, for granted. Or we must not offer up the same thing that the nation said. I understand that he's mighty, and my heart will melt and run away. Instead, I call you today, instead to understand the significance of this as we remember our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that we might have redemption through not his good works only, or his stuff that he did, or his teaching. That's all great. But he gave his life for us. His body was broken, and his blood was shed so that our transgressions could be taken on him, so that we could be healed because of his death. Take a look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. And while we do that, I'll ask the men to come forward who will be serving the Lord's Supper together tonight. Come forward. 
1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, Paul reminds us, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The last few times we've spent good time understanding what the different things that we're supposed to remember and enjoy and what we're supposed to realize and learn from this, this, this uh, communion. Today we're going to go back right to one of the most basic ones, which is remembrance of what Christ has done for us. So what we'll do in a moment, if you're not a believer, you know what I'm talking about, please don't take this. This is not like any magic juice that's going to change you. Uh, this is very important as we commemorate our Lord and Savior and as we enjoy Him. For believers, it's a wonderful occasion for us to, to do this Lord's Supper together. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.